like lines of thought that I think could be really interesting to pursue further. Um, we ended last time on the point of, we kind of looked at what are the ways the adaptive unconscious works with pattern recognition, selecting for attention, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And it kind of ended with um, that one of the main uh, methods the adaptive unconscious uses is accessibility. To determine what's going on, it often um, recognizes the patterns that are accessible to it. Accessible meaning the ones that are available to it. Difference between professional chess player and somebody who's just learning chess of what can they actually recognize, but also to some degree what's, what is chronically accessible. So that would be more if we look at something like uh, negative childhood experiences and that those can be chronically accessible. So I perceive every situation as dangerous, even if it's not. Because the adaptive unconscious has a chronically accessible, um, basically, danger detector that takes certain things to be dangerous, even if they're realistically not. And I think that's actually looking at this question of accessibility and what does that mean for learning? What does that mean for everyday life? What are the things that are accessible to you? What are the things that are accessible to me? And how do we thus perceive and interact with, for instance, a learning situation or a new theory or whatever differently? I think that can be actually a really interesting question. And I think it goes deeply into questions like, heuristics. We, we may use the same heuristics, but you have different data that's available for your heuristics. Um, priming. How do we, through priming, make something accessible so that people then act based on that priming? Um, stereotypes. Um, how are stereotypes accessible and thus we uh, use them to, um, to kind of navigate the world. So I think that could be just a really ground understanding of what does this accessibility really mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that could be a already kind of a starting point because then I have a few thoughts that I think could be interesting, which um, further going, uh, Going further in the book, um, he, can, he has two distinctions that I think could also be really interesting also for further understanding learning, which is what he calls the doing before knowing principle, which is um, that especially in child development, you can see that children learn specific principles of um, of behavior. One of them would be the discounting principle. I practice piano and if I am rewarded afterwards, I will assume, oh, I must have not really liked playing the piano. So it's one of those intrinsic, extrinsic motivation things. And um, research has often thought, oh, children learn this discounting principles around the age of three or four because they can then say, oh, 
I, I got rewarded, so I must not have liked it very much. But actually, further research shows that they've been acting according to that principle for a very long time before they were able to verbalize it. So this, for learning, how often do we actually learn something on an unconscious level before we even come close to being able to verbalize it? I think that can be a really interesting second question. Mm -hmm. And a third question, I'm just going to throw these three questions that I'm, that I'm currently exploring out there, is um, one of the main ways he assumes we can change our unconscious is through, is through changing the information it is making decisions upon. So basically, what, what are the, what's the information? In your words, it would probably, what's the long-term memory content that our adaptive unconscious, our unconscious can, has accessible and can make decisions based upon? And the question I would then have is, how do we actually do that? How do we actually change the information that's available to our unconscious so that it can make, so that it can, for instance, evaluate situations differently? How does that really work? How can we as through our consciousness kind of say, okay, I would like more of this in my adaptive unconscious. How do I put it in there? <laughs> um, what, are the, what are the ways to do that? So let's start from the first one then. Um, with accessibility, when you first started using that word, I found it surprising because one reason is that access as a concept has an idea of, uh, of somebody who is accessing or some agent doing the accessing. So the one thing is that I'm not, wouldn't be entirely, I mean, to be fair, words like access are here used really as a metaphor. So I shouldn't have to be, I shouldn't be too pedantic about it, but you know, if it is a metaphor, then some, some aspects of it, some aspects particular to the idea of, of access should be, should be good like should be should be good for explaining or describing the situation so one might be that someone is doing the accessing i'm not like to me that's uh, that seems a bit awkward i'm not i can't immediately think of what that would be but the the second thing about access is actually it, it occurred to me when you spoke a bit longer how i could think of access is that um because of if you compare something like priming to um to well well maintained or strong schemas um so if you have a, a strong schema, then even when unprimed, it will be easy to uh, engage that in your thinking, let's say. But if you're primed, then you might, have, uh, you might have a schema you don't use as often or that it's not as strong that will actually be um, working more effectively and be easier to use in your thinking because you've been primed. Um, so in that sense, you can talk about two, or from what I see here, you can talk about two factors that um that contribute to making something accessible which is recent illumination or recent activation recent meaning within the last uh certainly less than a day i mean i'm thinking minutes but i imagine le le less than a day would probably also be uh sensible length of the time and uh, and also just the, the the sort of strength or the how ingrained and how well developed a particular schema is or set of schemas is um 
yeah so it's like uh it's like how how powerful that thing is and then like multiplied by how how warmed up it is i suppose mm -hmm. um something like that so so that's how i would view that's how i would try and understand activation based on yeah. oh, sorry access access based on uh, or accessibility based on um what you were saying there in that um, that, in, in his words, those, those two would be a recency and the, and the other one would be kind of chronic accessibility, which doesn't have to be bad. Like it can be that you have really useful, really useful schemas that are available to you, but it can also or, be that, or not, yeah. exactly, it can also be that you have really non-useful schemas that are chronically available to you. Yeah. So what one is, I mean, you could say, one of those is uh, the result, you, often anyway, of, of deliberate um, attempts to, to build. Uh, if, for example, we're talking about expertise. And one of them is usually the result of um, continued, um, continued behavior that results in, in, well, stuff you don't want, I suppose. I mean, I was going to use the word maladaptive, but usually, as you were saying before, these things are adaptive to some particular situation. They're just not universally very well adapted. So like they're adapted, for example, they might be, um, might be making you safe as a child or something like that. And then as a result, because they're there, then they end up getting used a lot and they end up getting ingrained for the longer term and they're not appropriate in other situations. It's, it's even, I think it can even be simpler. Um, if, I, if I think about something like, let's, let's imagine it's about body movement. Hmm. As children, we experiment with our body movement when we learn how to walk. It's like, how the fuck does walking work? Um, and then usually when we've reached a certain uh, competency at walking, we're like, okie dokie, I can walk now. But then, for, for instance, if you want to go further in, in athletic pursuits, you want to get really good at basketball, you have to probably change some of your inherent movement patterns to become more efficient at certain things. So you kind of have to relearn those things that once were good enough, but to get to a certain level, they may not be anymore. And you have to change that basic pattern and that basic perceptive pattern potentially. That's in fact uh, what happens with dance. So indirectly in sports, you may have to change some aspect of the way you move in order to increase your efficiency for the sake of other actions taken that you do in the sport. But in, a, in dance, the entire purpose is to change the way that you move to some specific style or way of, of moving. So then, then, then you actually have to pay attention to little, um, little features of your movement that you normally don't pay attention to and change them. Yeah. Which, which this reminds me, I know that you've done the, you've done the Coach Wooden podcast. I haven't listened to them yet, but, but I know that he was one of the, one of the main ways he taught was, was actually something that reminded me of what you said. He was very focused on fundamentals and he, he would always give people one really small fundamental thing they should pay attention to and they should change. So where they place their foot, how they hold the ball, um, and he would drill that thing knowing or hoping that that would change the bigger pattern. But really being clear on this, do this. Don't do it like that, but do it like this. 
that, in fact, exactly what you just said, do this, don't do it like that, do this. That's called a sandwich, which was a method that he used a lot, actually, uh, a, a, a wooden sandwich. A do wooden this, sandwich. don't do this, do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and then, so the, the second thing that you, question that you mentioned uh, today, I can't actually remember what it was. Can you remind me, please? Um, the second one was... Um, let me think. We had accessibility. Oh, we had this doing before knowing principle. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is something that um, I, I hadn't heard of this principle before, and I, I, I didn't know that about children. But I do know that um, it's it's certainly very much the case that people are only verbally aware of a small fraction of what they're doing. Um, and they're only able to explain a small fraction of what they're doing. There's, for example, there's research around people, um, around taking experts. So there's a, for example, in medical teachings, there's a way of teaching surgeons, which is that you have a surgeon perform an operation, or it could be a dummy operation, but you have a, a surgeon perform an operation with students watching, and then they explain what they're doing as they're doing it. And then uh, afterwards, the I can't actually remember what happened next, but the, the, the crux of it is that that's how it works. Is that you, there's a demonstration along with explanation given by the person who's doing the demonstration. And this is what the students learn from. I think afterwards they have to um, uh, sort of explain the procedure and then do the procedure, something like that. But, but the, the, the crux of it is that there's this person who's doing it and explaining it. And then um, when some researchers came and, and looked at this in more detail, they discovered that there were uh, the amount of stuff that was being explained is about 30% of the total of the skills and things that were being employed by the specialist. So what ended up being a more effective way of teaching was actually to analyze a surgeon as an outsider or something of an outsider, look at all of their behaviors, including the ones they, they didn't speak about, they may not have been aware of, and then provide that information to the novices and have them learn from that. And in that case i don't remember how they measured this but they discovered that it was much better for teaching when it was that way so there's lots of stuff that's that's um that a person wouldn't explain it might be because it's too obvious to them and they think it's obvious but it might also be because they're simply unaware that they're doing that and it's been found that people doing all sorts of tasks which even tasks which seem to be very um apparently explicit and logical so an example of that would be computer programming uh when doing debugging then there are lots of that's one thing that's been studied debugging and um, there are lots of things that an experienced programmer will do that they won't say that they're doing when they're doing it to, to solve a problem part of their problem solving kit but it's not something that they can say that they're using so this kind of thing um, i mean there's another thing which is the whole thing about um stuff like the inner game of tennis and stuff like that where you know you, you deliberately try and verbally get out of the way of the body and have your body you know have your body do it and you know respond to it itself without you verbalizing too much about what you're doing and by verbalizing you actually get in your own way i mean this is probably because you have separated parts in your brain which are involved in, in each of these you know in the motor versus the verbal parts of you know not well integrated probably why i'm i, I guess um so this sort of thing is uh i mean i, I also think that the whole Basically, the whole of anthropology is predicated on the idea that there's all this stuff that people do that they can't explain, and then people, anthropologists come in and explain it. Because they don't really, they don't so much have a 
central theory, like or a central concern about human behavior, like, um, uh, like for example, I mean, a psychologist, I suppose, is still very, could be very general, but they could look at things from different sides um, and take, take a particular angle on like why people have this, uh, this approach. And then you have, um, you can even talk about economists talking about people trying to maximize uh, their own benefit or something like that. Um, but then with an anthropologist, I suppose anthropologists aren't talking about individuals, they're talking about cultures. But nevertheless, uh, you know, it, it really seems like what they're doing is they're going into a place and saying, well, all these people are following all these rules and the way, this way of being in this culture, but none of them can really explain what they're doing. So which, I'm going to go there and I'm going to say it. <laughs> I'm going to make which, it explicit. Which would again point to this distinction between explicit and implicit learning. That we learn a, a lot of information implicitly. We, we kind of take it on, you call it osmosis, call it whatever you want to call it. And um, that so much of, um, of what we do and how we behave is actually not reflected or not, oh, I, I see these people do that. So I think it's a really good idea to do that as well. It's just what happens. And, um, and that I think this being clear on how much of what we do is actually implicitly learned and how much of what we then explicitly think about is again based on layers and layers of already implicit learning is actually a really interesting thing to think about so um when you when well, you talk yeah i'm sorry to interrupt i mean it, one thing is that it does seem that this is more common among children than among adults but ch children seem to be doing a lot of implicit learning as you might call it and and less explicit than adults. Adults seem to be the other way around compared to children. Well, I don't mean the other way around, like there's necessarily more explicit learning than implicit learning. I just mean adults learn more explicitly than children do, and children learn more implicitly than adults do. Um, so, you know, like a typical example of that would be language. Uh, there's a critical age at about something like 12-ish, something between like 11 and 13, uh, where, you know, after that age, most people starting to learn a new language will not be able to uh, learn it to the native speaker level. Well, well, actually, people can, probably can, but it just takes, um, people don't usually have uh, a native accent at that level unless they, mm -hmm. they spend a very long time training it. Whereas before the age of 11, you know, if, if you achieve basically proficiency in some language in some language environment by the age of 11, you're likely to naturally without training adopt uh, whatever accent is used in your surroundings, so you'll sound like a native speaker, and probably quite possibly, you know, could be called a native speaker. Um, so this, uh, I mean, that, the whole idea of the way that accents come about is is a, the reason why they're so you know easy for children, I guess, is is because of this kind of implicit learning that's going on. I mean, la language learning might be slightly different from other kinds of learning, but um, that there is you know this implicit thing going on. I, there, there's a uh, some research about saying that it's actually different kinds of feedback that um, children below that age respond to that uh, there's a kind of uh, apparently a positive feedback for children below the age of around 11 ish uh, and the negative and they respond more to negative feedback above the age of about 11 
I haven't actually looked into that research in too much detail. Um, but apparently there are different sort of feedback mechanisms in children and adults, and that's for children and adolescents. And that's, uh, that's partly responsible for this kind of difference at different ages. I mean, it certainly seems that, you know, you, you're, as an adult, you're going to carry on at any stage in your life, you're, you've got your history and it's going to affect you. Um, and so you, at any stage beyond childhood, you've got your whole childhood that has, you know, affected you and continues to affect you over time. Um, um, and then um, it just, it, it seems, sorry? Um, finish your point. Yeah, so it, it, it seems to me that while, in while implicit learning probably does continue to happen over time, I imagine the bulk of it is happening in childhood. And, and I would really like to explore that, that kind of idea because I'm, I'm not sure that's the case. Um, like this, what you, you said, children probably learn more implicitly. I would say yes, because children don't yet really have the capacities to learn explicitly a lot. So I think adults definitely learn explicitly more than children. We can teach ourselves something in a different way than a child can. And we can think about things differently than a child can. I, I would agree with that. But, I, but the... the guess I would have is that actually still most by, by a long margin of what our learning is, is implicitly. And that also the explicit learning has to be based on, on a lot of implicit learning, which would then for me, um, bring about questions of how do we create learning contexts in in which this kind of trying to understand something explicitly but having the space to experiment and do the implicit learning can actually happen but i i, I think just that could be a really interesting point to just figure out is that true how do you see that how do you think about that uh you know, to, to settle that kind of question, you'd have to go through several steps. Um, you'd, have to, you'd have to decide um, on what you, you know, what you mean by learning in a sense and how you're going to measure it. And then you need to carry out, you know, you find some data somehow, maybe carry out some experiments or whatever. Uh, and then, and then, you know, in some sense measure this thing, like how much uh, implicit versus explicit learning is going on. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's what you have to do. I mean, maybe some people have done that before. I don't know. I haven't seen any re research of that kind. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it might be that people learn more ex implicitly than explicitly. But one thing that I, I do um, know about quite a lot is, uh, is learning approaches or teaching approaches that are um, based on the idea of discovery. It's partly to do with uh, implicit learning. Basically, trying to with i mean there's a kind of a, a constellation of ideas around it but things like um trying to uh engage learners you often children uh in in thinking by setting them problems and making them think about problems rather than trying to give them uh solutions i suppose um that's just what one of one of a hundred ways to say this um but so or, or like an example of this is um 
uh, what's that guy's name again? I can't remember. He, he, there's a kind of turtle uh, programming language. It's like you, you use it to move this robot turtle around. It's been around since the 70s or, 80s or the 80s. Um, it's called like Logos or something. I can't remember. Um, uh, and the guy who invented, who invented this programming language is intended for children to learn programming. And uh, with the idea that, you know, they'll mess around with this turtle. And like mess around is, is a word that I'm using intentionally because the idea was that they were going to sort of play around basically with this turtle, with programming this turtle. And then uh, on that basis, they would kind of learn how programming works because they would have done some playing around, messing around. And, um, you know, they would have discovered things just through their play. And uh, I mean, I could go on, but there, there are many, many such, um, many similar types of, of attempts have been made, like, uh, like, this, uh, this turtle that I mentioned, I think he has a book called Mindstorms, uh, where he explains his, his sort of theory. Um, there's uh, discovery learning, problem-based learning. Problem-based learning is big in medical schools in the UK. Uh, I think it's still big, actually. It was for a long time. And uh, these, these various types of things which try to be less explicit in teaching, try to be more relying on the reasoning of the uh, of the students or learners so they can try and tackle the problem themselves and basically it's a long story but basically a lot of research has been done on this and it's all been found that explicit learning is better like basically every time implicit learning is is has been a failure for what, decades what what would what would you call explicit learning in this case uh so i mean actually explicit teaching rather than learning sorry mm -hmm. um not not learning that i should make that distinction so um by explicit teaching, I mean things like uh, things like first demonstrating how to solve a problem then, by giving worked examples, then giving then giving um, sort of semi-finished worked examples to be where they can just finish parts of those worked examples, so it's like heavily scaffolded. Um, then you know remove more and more of the scaffolding until you get to uh, Un un until you get to no scaffolding, basically, but you're still solving very standard problems. Um, and then, yeah, and then do increasingly um, unusual looking problems from there. This kind of, that's like a heavily scaffolded, heavily explicit approach. You say exactly how to do something, um, and then you, you, may, you basically get someone to practice gradually through several steps. And if you, can, if you compare with people who are taught in that kind of, way over you know i mean you know this isn't done in every i'm not talking about every single subject ever invented but uh in in, in various things where it's testable whether people are people are you know learning or not they're learning or not um if you can compare that against people who go through kind of discovery approaches um then uh in every conceivable dimension that you can measure um, people who have this kind of direct instruction, there's actually a thing called direct instruction, capital D, capital I, um, which, which uses this. People who have this direct instruction perform better in every single way you can imagine. So like they, ha they are more, so they know the material better, they can solve standard problems better, they can solve non-standard problems better, they're more creative with their problem solving, they're more able to solve, the, uh, use analogies to solve the new problems using their existing knowledge. Um, they usually uh, feel better about their learning. They feel more like happy and confident about it. You know, it's just like every single site. Um, so, 
and and that's what, just that's teaching not learning though i mean i do have to be explicit about that exactly and i and i would like number one i i really appreciate hearing this and it just sounds like in a way this is really built for for building a strong foundation so that people understand the understand whatever they're supposed to learn right now like you're building you're helping them build a clear and strong foundation for that by going through these steps and making it slowly more and more complex all of that and at the same time like for me the distinction between explicit and implicit learning would be explicit learning would be i explain to you how to do all of this and once you understand it i'm like okay done we're done here great whereas the implicit learning would actually be a lot of the of the problem solving itself because you're learning how to recognize patterns you're learning how to be like ah if this thing is there i need to use this tool and if that thing is there i need to use that tool and do, do, do. a lot of that is yes you're it's explained to you but in all in if i look through this adaptive unconscious conscious lens a lot of learning how to recognize for instance if we look at a math problem to realize that if there is a, a certain symbol i have to use a certain formula that 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 has a lot to do with implicit learning of connecting those two so that um i'm actually learning that ah okay those belong together and and that happens through problem solving that doesn't happen through abstract understanding that um learning and it seems like yeah it seems like what you what you called scaffolding like giving people semi-solved uh problems where it's like this is the problem we're looking at this part of it is basically teaching those patterns in a much more concrete way so that it's actually easier for for the unconscious to recognize those patterns and to integrate them yeah so um two things here one thing i want to talk about is literacy one thing i want to talk about is something else let's talk about literacy first so um <laughs> so, so yeah when I'm when looking kids forward learn to, to read, the second one second thing so so when when kids learn to read um i i spent i spent a bit of time working at um a literacy essentially a literacy company like we made products to help kids learn to read basically so I, i had to know some stuff about this so like when when um when kids learn to read then um reading english is in particular was what i was looking at firstly because english has the most research done on it mostly i think because uh english is spoken in the united states and they they do a lot of research there um and the funny thing about english is that it's not written phonetically so it it's like a bit of a pain unlike you know the majority of the world's languages they have some sort of phonetic system for writing but english has this bizarre spelling system which is although consistent most of the time not all the time it's highly highly complicated so um so kids have to spend a long time learning how to well how to read and then how to spell as well it's like the other side of kind of the other way around um but so learning learning how to read you have to go through this stage where you learn you know all the different um ways that letters can come together to make sounds uh and so you know first of all first of all you, you learn the alphabet and then you learn okay so some of the some of these are easy like 
the letter D is pretty much as always a duh sound. You know, there's not very many, not that many exceptions to that really. But then, you know, some things are complicated. Like as soon as you get to vowels, there's all kinds of sounds that they could be making, Espe right? Especially in English, like there are so yeah. many different vowel sounds. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm specifically referring to English in particular, because other languages you, you won't be able to so easily generalize for in, in this description. But, um, but anyway, when you're learning English, like, you know, a vowel, um, an A can sound like an A or like an R or like an A or like a whatever, right? So loads of things. So you, you need to see, you need to find out like what sounds it can make and in what context it makes those sounds, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a whole long process. Um, so uh, there, there is a, an approach to teaching based on sounds first, it's called phonics. Um, the one way or another, everyone who learns, uh, every, all children at least who learn uh, to read and write literacy in English will have some phonics. Some, some will have a more dedicated phonics-based program. Some will have relatively cursory phonics. It depends a bit on their educational philosophy. I'm not gonna get into that too deep. But the point is that they do that, right? They learn the spelling bit. They learn the reading based on the sounds bit and they can sound out words. You get to that level where almost every word they can sound out, right? Except for some really weird ones like yacht, Y-A-C-H-T, like what, what's going on there, right? It, obviously when they see it, they're gonna say yacht. Well, in German right? you would say yacht, which is actually- Exactly, exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, um, but in English you don't say that, you say yacht. So, yeah. um, so they see it and they're like, well, it's a yacht or whatever, right? <laughs> so they're still gonna make that kind of mistake, obviously, because they haven't, they don't know about the word yacht, but they, they um, but they can, most words, if, even if they've never seen it before, they can sound it out. Now, what happens, this usually, typically, I mean, obviously it depends, but typically, at least in the United States, uh, it's around age eight when children can, can learn this, right? It's age eight. Um, but what happens at that age is that basically they can read lots of, lots of text, but they're really, really, really slow. And then the next stage of development, well, it's kind of, Literacy is an incredibly complex process, but you can basically talk about two aspects of it, or three. Uh, so one of those aspects is uh, at, at that age, at age eight, you have this division between the classes of, uh, of American society because up to age eight, it doesn't matter what, you know, how rich you are, what color your skin is or whatever, pretty much most kids are kind of reading more or less the same. Like the difference is really not very big. But then past that age, suddenly there's a massive difference between classes or races or, or, or something, right? I mean, you know, those two things are sometimes not too different in America, but um, so, you know, you, you have, um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make a political point, right? No, Basically, I, it's just like, no, I, 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 was, you know, I, was, I was just thinking of, of a comedic act by, I'm going to send that video to you, but basically it's about him, be, him being a really poor white dude and uh -huh. having a lot of black friends who are like, the white people and he's like damn you think if i took all your money i would move right next door <laughs> like that's his that's his whole point that white people can be poor too even though it's mostly black people in the neighborhood he's in yeah yeah anyway so, so let's just let's just call it poor and rich um so yeah. generally the, the 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 poorer kids tend to so the poorer, poorer and richer kids are both getting better at reading actually after the age eight but the poorer kids are getting better reading slowly and, and the rich kids are getting better reading quickly. Mm. And the reason is, is because of a gap in, in knowledge. Mm. That's a real, the, the biggest, the biggest difference is, well, there's another, another difference, which is a gap in the amount of actual reading volume. Uh, that's also related to knowledge, but, um, 
so so there's a knowledge a knowledge gap essentially like the rich kids tend to just know more it means that when they read a text they can make more sense to them because they know the stuff right so that that's one side i'm not going to talk about that right now but that is one side another side that i actually wanted to talk about is um is suppose that you have two kids and it's not not a knowledge uh, difference between them what what happens is that as you you know you you're, you're sounding out every word you have to look at every word and and you know actually sort of consciously process it and go like well there's this letter and then this letter and then this letter and you put all the words together and it makes a sound b-a-t sounds like bat all right so that word says bat and then you move on to the next word right and it's kind of a slow process um but you're, you you've reached that level where you can do it but it's a slow process what happens is that as you do more and more reading um actually the individual words like bat gradually end up being um memorized by like a separate system like a separate cognitive kind of element there's this gradual memorization where it just sees the word bat bat and it just goes like bat like that you don't even actually see the bat you just see bat right and this is something behind like when um for example i don't know if you've ever seen these texts but you can see you have these texts where every word beyond a certain length like every word for example that has more than four letters has um the, completely the, messed the, up yeah so all the letters inside are jumbled or, or like they have a or something you know something's wrong with them or like they have a, a, a missing letter or something you know and and if you if you read that text you can read it just fine and what's happening is that that, that separate cognitive system that's not involved in actually spelling out words is just sort of recognizing that oh it's got the beginning and the end and the middle word letters are kind of right to be this word and it's just like bam and it's kind of a, almost like an image recognition and the way that it happens is um you just read loads of text and gradually this thing gets like built up on the side separate from the system that does the the direct uh kind of decoding which is much more requires much more effort there's this thing that's being built up on the side of essentially just like memory for the shapes of words and it can just it can just intervene and like one, one thing that has been you know there's a lot of evidence for this model partly from people who've had unfortunately people have had strokes because people who have strokes in different parts of their brain um can have different can have different parts of their reading sort of equipment if you like affected so um someone can be affected in their reading because um if you give them the jumbled letters they can't read it so they mm. actually have to spell out every word and, th and then you know if they come across a word like yacht then they go like yacht right so that person has like the sort of memory part is kind of gone whereas the other another person can actually read yacht but if you give them a nonsense word they've never seen before like um i don't know blid that's not a word right if you give them the word blid they'll be like i've got no, I, i've got no idea what that says like i don't know I, i've got no idea what that sounds like basically no they, they 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 can lose either the memory the the kind of like word library or they yeah. can or they can lose the phonetic or phonic uh, sounding out thing yeah so so what i'm saying is the implicit learning that happens here is as you do loads and loads of reading you sort of build up this sort of memory word bank which is really 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 fast but you actually need to have the explicit learning of the alphabet in order to get the be able to do the reading which allows you to do the building up of that word bank and people have there's this there's this reading kind of philosophy called whole language or whole word it's complicated this is very political like people it, it really political is the right word i mean um because it's involved in politics and because like people sort of mudslinging each other in this world of literacy really honestly 
but um, but roughly speaking, there's this thing called called whole language, uh, where they're looking at um, they're actually trying to teach words the entire uh, kids the entire word. So they're trying to not teach B A T. You're trying to teach back straight off. And what they discover is that the results are not very good. You actually can't do it that way. You can't take that shortcut. So actually, you do need to have all this like built up. You do need to go in that order. You do need to like learn the alphabet and then learn phonics and then do all the reading and then you'll build up the word bank. That's the only way it's, it's going to realistically work. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then there's a second thing I want to say, but I don't know if you have a response to that. Um, so I might want to change position because currently there's a car arrived. So it's my. Let, let's change, know, it's let's change position in a few minutes or shall we okay. do a quick, quick one right now? Uh, now would be good, to be honest. Okay, let's have a short break yeah. then. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so what I wanted to say about that is, I'm, I'm really curious in this also about the distinction of explicit and implicit learning, because I really get the explicit and implicit teaching and how important mm -hmm. the explicit teaching is. And also even looking at the sounds, I am curious about how much of that is really explicit learning in the sense of, oh, I'm reflecting on this and I'm like, chick, 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 and how much of that is actually also happening in the unconscious of, of connecting these, like, I think in this, in this model of, um, of if we look at short-term memory, long-term memory, it would be really clear. It would be like, this is short-term memory. I repeat it often enough, it ends up in the long-term memory. But if I look at it more as what are all of the systems that are involved even in learning that this, this shape, the S sounds like S and how to, how to do that. And if I remember my, my mother is a teacher. So when she teaches uh, like words and letters, it's about you don't just show an S, but you show a snake that makes the S and so you already use kind of knowledge they have. Mm. Um, so, so again, there, like what's the explicit learning and what's the implicit learning and how important is the implicit learning in the process of learning that? Yeah, so, we, so going back to uh, the sort of two stages here that you go through a kind of such a phonics stage followed by a wide reading stage, let's say. Um, so go, going through that, we, we know for sure that the wide reading stage involves lots of implicit learning. As far as, as, far as um, you know, picking up the shapes of those words goes, you could be, you don't have to think about like, the lot, that, 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 that's, you, that's pretty much certainly like very close to 100% implicit. You know, you, 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 you're, you're just picking up that the shape of this word is like this. Um, this is partly why it's a surprise as a research result, as a, that, that, you know, that people are doing this. People weren't aware that they're doing this. Nobody thought people were doing this, but actually they are. So, so it's clearly, it, it, that's implicit. So we, so that's kind of settled as far as that's being implicit. But then the, the other side is like, is it implicit or explicit? Just started raining. Uh, is it implicit? <laughs> well, good implicit. that you're inside now. <laughs> that we're inside, yeah. Uh, is it implicit or explicit? Or how much is it implicit or explicit when we're looking at the, um, the first stage, the phonics stage? So with the phonics stage, I mean, one thing that really, really um, 
one thing that might be important to that is that uh, a really important aspect of um, of learning to read at that stage is something called phonemic awareness. So before children actually encounter any writing of the alphabet, then they can have different levels of awareness of various, essentially linguistic ideas or almost metalinguistic ideas. So things like the idea that uh, language is made of sounds, that the sounds are limited in number and consistent or more or less consistent and that um and you know and that you can split up words into individual sounds and you can say the word bat is made up of ber followed by a followed by t now a lot of children don't don't know that and and you know some children know that kind of but they kind of don't you know like they sort of they vaguely know that some children mm -hmm. are very very clear about that and then the level of clarity about that is very important in their subsequent uh learning to read um so I don't know whether I'd classify, I don't know how that's going to, how I would classify that, but certainly the actual but, but is it, being shown. At, at least it implies that there is already lots of groundwork that can be there and cannot be there. Like this, and, in fact, and that that's all implicit, basically. Yeah, and, and in fact, it's, it's also been shown that by explicitly uh, getting children to, uh, to explicitly break down words into sounds and, and do other kinds of explicit exercises, you can improve their phonemic awareness, which then impacts the how easy it is for them to learn to read. It makes mm -hmm. it easier for them to learn to read in future, in like future meaning like a, you know six months down the line or a year down yeah. the line. I mean, you're basically um, you're basically through that explicit, through those explicit tasks, teaching them patterns that they can then use. Uh, at least uh, that would be the way I would look at it. If I, if I have these explicit tasks and I learn, oh, this is this, this is that, I can break this up. Like actually I'm, I'm able to really learn those patterns so that then my system can recognize them later on. Or would you disagree with that? I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not sure I'd use the word pattern because like you're kind of more learning, uh, I suppose that at some level there's got to be some patterns, but it's more that the idea that you, you can analyze uh, words down to these pieces, and then you're learning kind of to recognize these pieces. So you're learning to recognize the word in the word stay as an S at the beginning. You're yeah. going to recognize that piece, and there's a word T that comes after it. What, what, um, I, what, what I mean by patterns is, if I remember, I... I witnessed my, my younger siblings learning how to read and they were at that uh, phonic stage. And they would look at words and they would go, but, but it wasn't like, okay, so that's the S. So they, they learned what those things are and that would just come automatically. What they were then struggling with figuring out is what the fuck is that word? Like, oh, store. So they, they, in one level, they had memorized this is S, this is T, this is O. So that's what I mean by patterns. Like those, those things um, get uh, taken into long-term memory, basically. The, pattern, I, the word pattern I would normally use for something which is more complex. Because it sounds mm -hmm. like this is more units rather than patterns that are being learned. 
like a pattern, you could call the entire word a pattern. I think that kind of pattern, pattern recognition process is what's or pattern learning process or whatever is what happens when you're in that second stage where you can already sound out words, but then you have to do lots of reading. You speed, you end up speeding up how quickly you can read because you, you recognize entire shapes. Now this entire shapes thing, I think that's a, that can, that's a, definitely a pattern recognition thing. Call it pattern mm -hmm. recognition. Um, but this thing, I just, it's because it's the idea of the, the, the unit, the like individualness of the things you're learning. Um, you know, pattern recognition, I normally think of like large, you know, sort of kind of complicated things, which, which you would call a pattern. You know, they mm -hmm. need to have several elements at once rather than like, this is a single element. Well, I don't think it's a single element because it's already, it's a shape that's connected to a sound that's connected to other things. So I would call that association rather than pattern then. You're associating a sound with a shape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, right now we might just be in, in the level of what word would you use for it? What word would I use for it? Because I think we're pointing to the same well, thing. I, but, well, I'm but, I'm, I, I, I definitely don't want to be like, just like a pedant or anything. But it's mm -hmm. just that if, um, it's just that um, I don't want to be like a philosopher who has to define every term really in yeah. lots of detail. It's just but, that when I use the word pattern recognition, it's actually quite, as far as I'm concerned, quite different in usage. Like, I mean, for example, I mean, throwing this in a completely different perspective, if I somehow was trying to create like a sort of a, a, a robot that could read or something, let's say, I mean, I don't know if that's sensible, but like, suppose that I was trying to do that, then, um, then it's sort of, you know, the things like uh, recognizing the shapes of words on a page, I would definitely use pattern recognition kinds of algorithms, I suppose. Whereas for things like, um, you know, this is S, it sounds like this. I, I, that's not something where, I mean, I would use a completely different technique. It, yeah. wouldn't, it wouldn't be that, that same thing. I, I mean, I'm fine with calling it associations. The, the main thing I had as a thought that I would like to throw in is, mm. um, number one, I would be curious, and I don't know if you know anything about that, if children with speech impediments have more difficulty learning this phonic stage. That's just a, th a thought I have because, um, again, I witnessed, um, I witnessed a, a sibling going through basic speech impediment uh, therapy and how a lot of that was not actually about um, um, explicitly teaching this is how you correctly do it, but actually learning new ways to build tension in the mouth, learning new ways to move the tongue, and that through those exercises, um, the speech impediment solved itself, which then had long-term effects. And I would be, so, so again, I would go into this, that even in this being able to put a phonic sound to something, there is lots of learning that has gone into that, that can have happened and that could have not happened. And I don't know anything about language learning. So I'm curious if there would be a difference for somebody who might have a difficulty saying, saying certain sounds. Yeah, so I, I have to say, I don't actually know anything really about speech impediments. 
but um, I do know a little bit about various kinds of problems with uh, with reading, uh, problems that people learn to read. So basically, um, generally speaking, when someone has a problem to read, uh, now now like a lot of research has gone into literacy and reading, especially in English. So people, cognitive scientists and people know a lot about how this stuff works uh, with quite a high confidence. And what happens is you, if you have, as long as you, you know, as long as you get someone who knows what they're doing, um, then you can actually diagnose a person's reading problem as a problem in some specific stage or specific element of this kind of several several stage thing. So you know, it might be that someone there's one kind of dyslexia. Dyslexia, I think, is kind of broader term for having trouble reading. Kind of. Um, uh, I don't I don't remember the exact definition, but like, there's more than one thing that dyslexia is basically. One type is when um, you are having trouble getting the the letters sound correspondence is right. So for example, um, you're having trouble with the shapes of the letters. We're having trouble with the idea that, you know, this this letter can be connected with this sound. And then like, basically, if you can more or less solve that problem, usually that person can read fine afterwards, right? as in they, they learn to read fine. Um, so what happens is essentially that, that, as far as I know, the best treatment for that is like really intensive uh, practice um, of that specific thing, and eventually, you, you 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 know, even though you have whatever problem at first, eventually, through enough practice, you actually overcome that. You just might require more practice than usual, um, or there might be, uh, or there might be some other stage. Basically, there, there might be some other thing where where you have um, where you have trouble. So uh, that's as far as I know. As far as um, you know, reading difficulties goes, it's like there's one thing in the many. You know, one classic one is is just not not enough. Uh, vocabulary so if you if you just don't know enough words and you're reading a text that has lots of unknown words and by lots of it doesn't have to be very high like you only need um you need to know over 95 percent of the words in the text in order to be able to understand it uh below that figure and you're going to have a lot of trouble understanding it. uh that's a rough cutoff but it's a pretty good cutoff so like five percent is not kind of doesn't sound very high you know if you don't know one in 20 words then you're going to be like seriously having trouble reading a text um this applies to foreign language, also applies to your own. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that means if you're at that level, you need you. What's holding you back is your vocabulary. So, in one way or another, you've got to address that issue. If if you're going to you know continue to learn to read or learn to read better. Can, um, can, um, do you still have something to add to that? That, that was all. That was all. Yeah. Wonderful. Because can we try to kind of translate this? to something like maths because um what i'm thinking right now is when you were when you were talking about how basically to teach to do this explicit teaching direct instruction how you you show how to solve a problem you break the problem up into pieces you have people do the different problems like i can imagine that basically as fundamental literacy in mathematical problems in a way. It's like you show that this one thing equates to using this technique and do, do, do. so basically in a way, I imagine it's similar to, to that, re like it's, it's not the same of course, because there's for instance, not that phonic phase, but there is in a way of learning, if there is this shape, there is an X, with a small two on top of uh -huh. it, that yeah. means you do this. And uh -huh. 
if there is an x with a small three, it's basically the same, but it's but you add this to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, so. One thing is that uh, literacy is kind of better understood than maths, actually, as a in terms of how well we know about how people learn to read and how the reading process happens cognitively is actually extraordinary. It's like it's a solved problem, uh, which is a crazy thing to say about anything about the mind. That we like, we basically know the answers, right? That's like, whoa. Uh, whereas maths is much more complicated than that in terms of knowing how people learn it and, and how people use it, and, you know, this sort of thing. So um, one thing about, I mean, there are a few things about maths that, while of course it would be lovely to, to use the analogy of literacy, there are a few places where that analogy falls down, which makes it more difficult to use literacy as an analogy. Um, one of those is that, um, uh, well, I suppose one of those is that okay, if we were going to, we were going to be very mechanistic about how we're going to teach and I suppose learn math, right? Then um, there's actually, you know, because of the the way of people um, kind of wanting to save effort then um, people can learn maths in a very uh, algorithmic and non-reflective way, um, which, and there's kind of, a, there's, in a way, there's like two ways of learning it, kind of, right, in a way. There's a kind of very algorithmic and non-reflective way where you kind of go like, when this happens, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then there's a much more reflective way, which is kind of thinking about the meaning of the processes. Now, I don't think that it's, um, I don't think there are no places where the algorithmic way of thinking is, it should be, a, uh, I don't think there are no places where it should be used or they should be avoided at all costs. But if the entirety of someone's mathematical knowledge and understanding is based on those kinds of procedures, then they're, I mean, basically their understanding is very shallow um, because they only know how to respond to like very specific stimuli. And, and this, is mm -hmm. a, this, is a, this is a real issue because, um, because of the idea of transfer, right? So this is something we, we mentioned before that we'll talk about one day and we haven't had time to, but um, or maybe we will in the future. But uh, with literacy, you're not really, uh, you know, the, tr the idea of transfer is not really uh, so relevant because suppose that, suppose that you're reading English, um, then presumably the whole idea is that you are going to read in English in the future. Like you're actually gonna be doing exactly this thing. And um, so the skills you're learning are exactly the skills you're gonna be using. Uh, whereas, so there's no, not really any transfer necessary. Whereas, um, you know, the maximum amount of transfer you need is like you need to read from a book, but you also need to read from like a street sign and a computer screen, you know, and that's kind of transfer because they're different, you know, background colors. <laughs> but it's like hardly, you know, it's not not something people have difficulty with. Whereas with with, with maths, the hope is at least, I did, well, this is this can easily. Uh, I don't want to get into like policy or anything, but but you know the hope is among a lot of people at least that um, people learn maths and then they can use it in some sort of situation outside of the original situation, right? Outside of like you've been presented with this neatly formulated like equation or something, right? Or completely abstract situation, and we want you to you know find the right number like that, right? That's not usually people's hope about people who are learning maths. Usually their hope is that this is going to be applied somehow. Now, in order for that to happen, you need, that's, you're asking for transfer, you're asking for quite a lot of transfer. And what we know about people learning maths is, and lots of things, is that transfer is really difficult to come by. It's actually very difficult to teach people in a way that, that results in transfer. Um, I'm currently reading a book about it. I'm not that 
not all the way through, but um, anyone who's taken some time to look at the research on transfer needs to, I mean, I've never heard of anyone getting more optimistic by reading research, let's put it that way. Like, whenever you read the research, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe people do so little transfer, at least the stuff that, that happens in the classroom. So, um, so that's, uh, that really changes the nature of what you're talking about when you're talking about learning maths and learning literacy. Because learning literacy, you, you, once you learn it, it's done. And it's like, you, you just do the same thing again. Just like, you know, read text, just like you've been reading text all the time. Whereas this is like, well, how are you going to you know, use your mathematical understanding to like model the way that uh, a virus is spreading around the world, you know, very topical right now. Or like, you know, uh, to, to, to understand, um, you know, how you can... Uh, I don't know what you want to do, like most efficiently pack things or whatever you want to do. I don't know. But like, you know, you, you, you're going to have some situations, you've got to apply it to a situation, the situation is going to be different, you've got to use an analogy. There's a, essentially a kind of an analogical thing to do. So as a result, it, it, it can be quite tricky. I mean, if you, if you break it down to some basic pieces, I think maybe you can do it. Like if you want to talk about how people learn arithmetic, then to some extent, yes. But even arithmetic requires some level of, um, some level of, transfer because the whole idea maths is all about abstraction and abstraction is essentially like huge levels of transfer well at least good abstraction is about being being like because you've got this abstract concept it essentially means that you've got like every concrete concept covered like every concrete situation covered and, so and you're talking about the idea of five you can be talking about five of anything right five of concrete anything five fingers five five pens five desks five whatever I, I and i have a question about that because so number one, transfer, I think, can be a really interesting thing to talk about. Um, at the same time, I'm now trying to go back to that explicit teaching, direct instruction. Mm -hmm. The way I would at least imagine it, and maybe my imagination of it is wrong, it would be that I am kind of teaching these chunks, and I am kind of telling people what to do with these chunks, mm -hmm. hoping that, 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 they, that they form a bigger picture in them, then in the end giving them more complex abstract weird tasks to do in which i'm basically asking them to bit by bit uh, transfer and abstract the knowledge they've learned through um through that so um it, tell me if i'm if i'm understanding something incorrectly yeah this is this is the direction i wanted to go in this is the second thing that i couldn't put in words because uh, the first thing I said I want to talk about literacy, and there's a second thing, okay. so, so it was this, right? We're, so I, I, I wanted I wanted to talk about how you can you can take two dimensions here. Okay, you can take one dimension as the you can take one one dimension as the teaching and one dimension as the learning. Okay, so we've got implicit. Let's say, let's call it implicit versus explicit teaching. So what that implicit teaching is probably going to be something like problem based type of. Uh, type of thing you give people problems and hopefully they learn the right thing uh but it's explicit you tell them exactly you know you tell them exactly what to do lots of work examples kind of thing right so that's implicit versus explicit teaching let's say and then you've got implicit versus explicit learning so i would really think of this the way i would consider this is imagine two people one person who is capable who has like particularly good at picking lots of things up implicitly versus someone who's really bad at that so they require explicit instruction in order to change anything they do um, in order to learn anything. So if you can imagine making this sort of four-pointed four uh, grid, then um, you can kind of think about what's going to happen in each situation. So 
if you have explicit teaching, let's say. Uh, oh, here we go. Let's see, this, let's see if this is working. Should, yeah. Yeah, there we go. So if you've got explicit teaching, then the person who can only learn explicitly is actually going to learn whatever is taught explicitly, presumably, because it is being taught that way. So I'd say- So, that so, that the, the, so, the, so the learning is basically learning that is required. So- uh, the, Yes. So, well, we, we can say that the person who, who, is only, who is only good at learning explicitly, like is not really capable of learning implicitly very well. That person is, when there's explicit teaching going on, they are gonna learn whatever is taught explicitly. Mm -hmm. They're probably not gonna learn anything else because they're not good at learning implicitly. Are there people like that? Um, well- or is this more of a thought experiment right now? It, it's, it's not so much I'm categorizing, I don't really wanna categorize people. It's just, I imagine there's a variation to, in the extent that people are gonna learn explicitly versus implicitly. One, one way you can see this, I mean, I suppose, on one level, you could almost call this intelligence. I'm not sure if that's appropriate to call it that. But like someone who's really smart is going to pick things up without you telling them anything. Right? Whereas um, someone who isn't very smart, even if something's really obvious, they don't realize you have to actually tell them. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I mean, I'm not sure if intelligence is appropriate to, as, as a. I mean, if, if, we go, if we go by this definition of intelligence is the. Uh, is the ability, um, ease, and speed with which you can create and manipulate abstractions, then I think the, more, the higher your intelligence, at least in this IQ sense, the easier it is for you to take something you've learned, to abstract it, to manipulate it, and thus turn it into something different. Yeah, so that's not really what, yeah, is this, I, Intelligence might not have been the best word then, but I mean, another example then would be some people learn foreign language and are, uh, are very good at mimicking, uh, you know, they don't put very much effort in, but their accent is actually quite close to the right, even though they're adults, like quite close to authentic um, to the language that they're learning. Whereas some people learn a foreign language and then their accent remains very strong coming from wherever, whatever their native language is. So I would say that, that, that these two people are different in their level of implicit learning. They may, have, mm. they may have learned the language to similar levels of proficiency, but one person might sound really kind of you know, right. They might sound very, for example, close to a native German or, or whatever, right? Um, whereas another person might sound obviously not, They're obviously from some other place. Interestingly, um, interestingly that second category, Americans very often are absolutely incapable of taking on any useful dialect. At least most Americans I've seen that, that have learned languages, German for instance, have such a strong accent, something that I see more rarely with, um, with other cultures. Like, so that's, that's a very interesting observation I've just personally made. Yeah, I, I don't know the reason, but I, I certainly also be my experience actually uh it's true but um yeah so 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 that there's a difference in implicit learning i would say there as an example right so then what would happen is that you know um that person has learned all the things that they've explicitly i suppose been taught you could say 
but they haven't picked up an accent, which is not something they've explicitly been taught. Right? Where, um, and if you were to put them in this thought experiment, if you if you were to put such a person, you know, if if you were to put such a person in an implicit teaching environment, then they wouldn't learn very much because they, they that's not the way they're going to pick things up. They're going to pick things up through explicit ways. Whereas the other person who learns implicitly in the implicit classroom they're going to learn whatever they're supposed to because they can learn that way in the explicit classroom they're going to learn whatever's taught explicitly plus some other stuff that they're going to pick up implicitly i imagine that's the, that's the kind of this is a it is a thought experiment but that's the kind of way i'm thinking yeah i mean in a way what you're what you're describing right now sounds similar uh uh, sounds similar to to your distinction between expertise and the learning style uh, based on prior knowledge and expertise. That's what, yeah. Um, implicit and explicit stuff is is also very strongly linked to expertise as well. That's true. So basically, somebody who has an explicit requirement for learning in a field that's trying to teach implicitly is basically uh screwed yeah you, you, you can say that uh, in this in this thought experiment in this thought experiment yeah so that, that's the that's the very candid version of it. that's the candid way and yeah. let's i mean let's make sure that this is a thought experiment yeah but this would be consistent with or at least you know on a on a superficial level it would be consistent with research showing the effectiveness of direct instruction in the face of uh, things like discovery learning, mm -hmm. right? Because if this, if this very crude like model thought experiment were, if you were going to look at it from the sort of direct instruction versus discovery learning kind of perspective, then, um, then what you'd expect is that based on that, you know, more people are learning. Or, or learning is happening kind of with everyone in the explicit case, and it's only happening with some of the people in the implicit case. Mm -hmm. I mean, that I think that is that is a very. So, so I think this this um, distinction between explicit learning, implicit learning, and explicit teaching, implicit teaching, is actually potentially a really really important thing to pay attention to that um that f for implicit learning to happen i don't need implicit teaching but for explicit exactly. learning to happen i need explicit teaching uh yes and and that actually if we look through this lens of of expertise saying implicit learning requires certain knowledge requires certain basic patterns whatever like basic pattern recognition basic stuff to be in place that would make a very strong case for for the explicit teaching to be required especially with people getting into a field like and that's actually yeah. yeah so i was gonna say like that's been confirmed by uh, I think confirmed very strongly by cognitive science research that depending on the level of the learner, they need different levels of explicitness actually. So 
intermediate or advanced learners require less explicit teaching. If you're mm -hmm. too explicit to them, what happens is that it ends up actually wasting their time because they already know a lot of what you're saying. Right. So, so like, whereas, um, and, and it, it, it's kind of, whereas with, with beginners, you need to really spell everything out because otherwise they're not going to know what else is going on. Um, so another thing I, I want to mention actually is that one way I'm looking at this moment is that implicit learning is, um, it's kind of like it's on all the time. Well, that's the way I'm viewing it. It's like, you don't, whereas explicit learning is only going to happen sort of under specific conditions, you know, if someone's, for example, being taught explicitly, that's a condition under which explicit learning would happen. Um, whereas implicit learning is kind of like this background thing that you just be on, you just be picking things up. I'm, I'm constantly having this, this thought about tennis coming to me, which uh, this, some of the stuff I've heard about tennis training is that actually one of the most efficient ways to teach people who have no idea of tennis how to play tennis is to just give them a racket, stand across from them, and just start by putting the ball back and forth. And just by doing that, within about two hours, you can have people playing a really basic game of tennis. Like there's, they're not going to win Wimbledon with that, but, but they just pick up the movement patterns basically without any verbal instruction. But then if you get to wanting to improve beyond a certain stage of, um, of expertise, you have to suddenly start to start looking at all of these minute um, details, which, uh, which then comes down to explicitly teaching people how to throw the ball when they serve it. And you spend like hours of just looking at how do you throw the ball so that you learn that pattern newly and you, through that, you then change people's whole serve just by teaching them how to throw the ball. So it's basically you then focus on details that you can explicitly teach, but those details will, through implicit adjustment of the rest of the system, start to change whole patterns. So rather than focusing on, no, you have to move your arm like this, you focus on grab the racket like this. No, adjust your grip again. No you've returned to your old grip. And through focusing on the grip, you change people's whole swing. So um, you then focus on details that you can explicitly control and the body will adjust to those details in an implicit way. Hmm. I, mean, I feel like when you talk about things like physical, like movement, sport, then in a way, you can say that the people have uh, a lot of pre-existing, could call it knowledge, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but you know, people have done a lot of moving already. You know, if they're hopefully. an adult and they're thinking hopefully. of Let, Let's say hopefully. Well, even if, they're, even if they're very sedentary, they still have to like stand up off their chair every day. Yeah. <laughs> to move to the fridge and open the fridge door. <laughs> <laughs> have to press the buttons on their phone so their thumbs get some exercise, right? So, um, 
<laughs> so, so you know, pe people people have a lot of kind of history and background of, of moving. Um, I wonder if that's got anything to do with the fact that so much of learning tennis is an explicit reaction. That's uh, right. Yeah, implicit reaction to these small explicit changes. Whereas, until somebody is a, I mean, certainly for a novice in most non-physical fields that's mm. not going to be the way that you're going to do it I mean, maybe at the expert level sometimes saying something explicitly is going to have a whole sort of implicit background to it and it's going to change all things and you know but that's something I, I could conceive of happening among experts but it's not going to happen among novices whereas it cool. seems to be the case that with tennis actually among novices it is also going to happen as you're describing or at least almost novices yeah so the really interesting thing that that comes up when you say that is basically looking at cognitive let's call them cognitive learning like where you learn a certain mental skill reading maths whatever that that's actually a different learning process potentially than many of the skills or it requires a different structuring of the learning because there might be so much less of a, of kind of a, a, a body of um, patterns. It's like, a white, you, it's like a blank canvas. In a way, yeah. Yeah. That's a really, yeah, I've, I'd never thought about that, that one. Tabula rasa. Tabula hmm? rasa. Yeah, but, but, that, but in a way, and I mean, on one level, I think that's not true. Like even for maths and for reading, there's whether your parents read to you, um, whether you've kind of played with uh, scales and understanding that if you put the same thing on both sides, that makes a difference. I imagine that has an impact, but there is much less of that when it comes to like learning how to add on paper and to subtract on paper like that's very much learning something that's very new compared to learning a new physical exercise because that has so much more to build on yeah i mean there's a so you read recently this book range right i recently Part, recently listened to a part of it yeah I recently listened to an interview with the author, just as I'm reading all this stuff about transfer, and it's such a strange conflict in my head because transfer seems to me to be this kind of nail in the coffin of the whole idea of education. It's really weird because, like, I mean, obviously, I'm not saying that it's the end. Like, it's it's just like when you read the transfer literature, then it makes you think transfer happens a lot less than I thought it would, and it's so important. So. What does that mean? You know, what are the implications? How, how are we going to overcome this? Or can we overcome this? But then when you look at range, the entire idea behind the book range is, is basically saying, well, I mean, one of several, but a very important idea in the book is range. Uh, is, sorry, it's transfer. Because you know, the idea is you learn, for example, Roger Federer being the classic example here, you learn like 10 or 20 sports or something, or you learn 10 or 20 musical instruments as the orphans case in uh, other other part of the book and um and then it ends up uh, improving your performance in some one particular sport because you've got these transferable skills 
But it seems like these transferable, you know, the whole idea of transferable skills again is the transfer thing. Um, maybe, I mean, I don't know how answers to this. I'm just saying it's 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 surprising, and it might have something to do with the whole thing about um, is is, is a lot kind of, of already is a lot of the tran transfer you're reading about right now, like um, academic transfer. Generally, yes. So so maybe actually that a lot of the academic learning is on one on some level dis, uh, like different from from for instance physical learning i imagine there must be some broad overlap but it could be that there's something that's really different for instance through this how much of that is is basically um Mm. expanding upon our conscious mind rather than our unconscious mind so tennis is is a lot of reacting it's about um things that our unconscious does automatically and we can kind of hone that whereas doing statistical analyses is so counter to how our unconscious processes the world and we have to teach ourselves these new ways of looking at data and doing tests with the data. And so it's basically like taking something that our conscious mind can do, but really honing in on that and kind of, of course, then teaching aspects of that to our unconscious. But in a way, it's, it's this expansion of the abilities of our conscious mind. And maybe that's much more difficult to transfer. I mean, the thing that strikes me most strongly as a very simple hypothesis to this is just that, you know, that it really is the whole blank slate thing that, you know, we're not, we're not, um, we don't have any instinctual mathematics inside us or very little anyway. And, um, and we really have to start from zero. Whereas when it comes to learning tennis, you know, you do know how to move your feet and arms. I mean, maybe not the right way for tennis right now, but you've got a lot of experience of moving them. So it's, it, while, while expert might not be the right word, you have this huge history, this huge background of moving your body. Again, even if you're sedentary, you will have moved every day, right, for your entire life. So, so you have this huge background of that. And it means that there's this, this enormous context, it's not a blank slate. And as a result, maybe, maybe that means that your subconscious can do more or that you can do things more implicitly for that reason, because of this huge, this, this vast background that you're working from. I mean, um, I mean it, it con what, what it connects for me just quickly to is even this distinction of statistics experts are not better at guessing than your layperson because yeah. they've kind of trained their conscious mind to do something. And probably the process of doing the mathematical analyses is by now also unconsciously rooted very much so. But that doesn't mean that their in the moment assessment of a certain thing is, is going through that analysis, but it still uses kind of the instinctual um, patterns we have.
yeah exactly and if they were going to change it they would have to actually practice that itself yeah the only way to get to the statistical analysis is to do the statistical analysis there is no instinctual way of doing it but what i'm saying is that um their instincts are no different to a layperson but i imagine i imagine that instinctual answers would change if they specifically trained for changing their instinctual answers like if they took a mm -hmm. statistics course which is like guess the probability <laughs> instead of like doing any calculations just like you're going to do loads of guessing um, then eventually they, maybe they gradually build up a better instinct for actual probability figures that's but given that that's not the way that you learn statistics you learn it through like essentially doing loads of maths then then that's not what they end up learning that 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 would be a very interesting hypothesis to test is if there is like that would really be interesting to see if you can teach people how to more accurately guess statistical things like that you basically train their their intuitive approach to that uh i'm sure that there are many examples of this that just aren't any of mine um one thing is that there are various kinds of uh, statistical kind of traps that you can fall into, which are based on kind of having the wrong kind of statistical distribution. It's kind of like if you structure a situation in a particular way, it's very difficult for your subconscious to get it right. Um, so anything with a flat tail, uh, black, anything that's black swan territory, is really hard to get your gut right on. Um, um, there's one example. Uh, oh yeah, certain kinds of. Oh no, you can probably get that. I mean, I was going to say regression to the mean is another one. It's um, counterintuitive at first. I think maybe you can run it. So regression. I don't know if you want to hear about what regression to the mean is. But uh, yeah, regression to the mean is, is just it's just like if um, sometimes uh, if you have like a particular if you have a really good day today, tomorrow's probably going to be worse. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is, on average, you know, on average, days are worse than today, for example, because today is a great day. So as a result, today, like, tomorrow, the most likely outcome is you have an average day. And that's worse than today. So usually after good days, you have, like, less good days. And usually after bad days, you have more good days. And it doesn't mean that one's causing the other. It's just because they're returning to the mean returning to the average um, but a lot of people will spot these kinds of patterns and go look what happened every time like you know every time off happens and on happens afterwards or every time that you know on happens and off happens afterwards or something you know but actually it's just returning to the middle yeah the, yeah i i i get that the question would be if you can truly train kind of the unconscious guessing for that because one of the things i'm just thinking about i'm thinking also about like thinking fast and slow and the mm -hmm. amount of of impact of for instance what's the number on your questionnaire that you will guess percentages differently if you have a higher number on your questionnaire as your as participant number compared to if you have a lower number on your questionnaire because of priming and accessibility so yeah, so we're back to back to what we were discussing, question one. Yeah. So like basically, yeah, when you're when you're primed, you're raising the accessibility of 
some other random thing, right? So you're raising accessibility of like numbers that are bigger than 10,000, um, you know, or, or something, right? Or just big um, numbers. Or just big numbers, <laughs> yeah, whatever, right? Big numbers, right? Or small numbers, right? Or whatever. You're raising the accessibility of those, but you also, as you, if you are well-trained in whatever field it is, then you also have a high availability of all of, of you have, you know, large amounts of information relating to that field. Whereas if you're not well-trained in that field, you don't have that availability. So it's like, you're not going to be countered by that expertise. You might, you might be countered by your prejudices about that field, which yeah. you're going to do something. So, so that would be another question of, even if I'm just trying to think this statistical guessing of how much knowledge about the content of what you're trying to get an intuitive feel about, you would need. So, so I think this opens up a whole ball game of like uh, really interesting questions actually. Do you, I mean, we can pursue those or we can pursue question three. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we, we're, we're almost at... We're out of time, I don't know. No, we're almost at one and a half hours, so maybe let's not open question three today. Yeah. But, um, but th this... Um, at least what's happening in me right now is th these thoughts give me a real sense of appreciation for the craft of a lot of the sciences we have and how in one way you have to really just stick to the to the method because that's the that's the best way we have figured out to to control these things like when it comes to statistical risk analyses to get back to that you can't just listen to your gut but you actually have to do the process that we have found to be um, most precise and in a way we have to kind of override aspects of our um, intuitive hit on things and to then in the end be willing to look at those numbers going like shit this contradicts everything I would have guessed but this is what came out of this analysis. I mean, it's amazing that, um, that humanity has come up with such a range of, of theories and so on, which are so counterintuitive that, you know, they go against people's nature. It's obviously a long story, but, but you know, especially in the early days, how are people, you know, there was very little to justify the existence of science <laughs> or anything like it. So, you know, how were how people getting away with coming up with things that were counterintuitive and saying that they were, were trying, and, I don't know. And, and then it opens up a whole different question of how to pursue science in that, because what I also find is that in many fields of science, people then become attached to the theories they agree with. So they stop looking at new information that might be countered to what, what they believe to be true. Like they be, they, so, so then there also has to be an, a complete impartiality as to 
what the right or wrong data is and we just have to we we kind of have to be willing to look at everything and question and just take it in well i mean humidity is one of the key powers of any kind of learning and science included nothing more annoying than a arrogant scientist <laughs> well but maybe maybe <laughs> But yeah, that this this actually um, gives me a newfound appreciation for a lot of the like this perspective gives me a real appreciation for science, scientific process, and also the the profound cha challenges for us humans with our makeup to try to do something like science mm. it's, it's unnatural yeah in one you could say you could say yeah i would say it's deeply unnatural and i think that also uh, bears real problems because there are things that we could that that are scientifically feasible or scientifically uh, interesting that might we should potentially not do for ethical or whatever other reasons. But again, that science should not <laughs> uh, make those distinctions. It should be like, this is possible. So then we have to see, find a different balance in that place. Very interesting. This is, this is a dude who studied the humanities looking at science <laughs> differently for a moment. <laughs> wow. I, mean, I studied sciences, so when I look at humanities, it's not, it's not that easy. Yeah, but, but I imagine, like, is, is a lot of your questioning a lot of your education question actually about academic education and this sense of how to teach people um, these academic skills. Is that what you're mostly drawn to or? Um, I think the questions I end up being drawn to get bigger and bigger um, or, or, or you know, they end up being very fundamental. Ultimately, the answers to these, you know, these questions aren't the kinds of ones that you can really interrogate directly very well. Uh, usually, the best way to make progress is to try and un try and understand smaller things. You know, try and make progress in smaller things. So one of the things that I look into quite a lot is uh, is academic learning because I am actually somewhat interested in, in it, largely interested in it, but not limited to that. I mean, basically, yes, I'm interested in academic learning, but not only how can it perceive better or something, but also what does it actually do to people. Is, is a big question of mine, right? What has actually changed in the world? And that's a bigger question, which is hard to answer. So as part of trying to answer that question, I try and figure out, okay, so how does it work? And how do people make it better? You know, and then hopefully with a better understanding of that, then I can you know, combine with some other things and I can try and answer questions like, what is what does it actually do when people go to school? You know, when people go to school for 12 years, how is that different than not going to school for 12 years? at an individual level versus, and also at a societal level, you know, 
And actually, which is a really hard question to answer. And actually, if I look through that lens that we just opened as this, just, I mean, what we're having here is an ad hoc, horrible theory, but uh, let's run with it. Um, if, we, if we assume that a lot of the academic learning is actually a very specific kind of learning where we kind of learn to follow these procedures that are kind of founded on things our conscious mind can get and then we learn how to follow these procedures to get to certain knowledge and to certain understandings, then that's really removed from learning um, patterns and strategies that function for our unconscious mind and that helps our unconscious mind deal with everyday life in a let's call it better way. So actually those two might have virtually no overlap. That would help to explain why transfer is so rare. I mean, if, maybe we don't transfer because, you know, because of fundamental, as you described, I can't actually put it in better words than you just did. Maybe people can't transfer because of that. So actually, so actually, that would be a pretty fundamental claim <laughs> based on a shitty ad hoc theory. <laughs> but but well, it's not uh, somewhere. Yeah, but, but but that claim I think would actually explain a lot of the problems with the education system and why it doesn't produce a lot of the results that people would hope, like personal growth, development of people. Um, it would actually really emphasize the beauty and power of science, but it would fundamentally distinguish that from the development of healthy and integrated and well-functioning humans. It would actually say that for many of the human activities of day-to-day -day life, science is not directly important or academics. Yeah, I mean that this uh, this is like thorny from many sides. I mean, when we say education is doing what people want it to do, one problem is that different people want different things, including sometimes individuals want. Yeah, we can talk about different groups. So we can talk about parents want one thing, businesses want another thing, government wants another thing. You know, different parties within the government might want different things. So you know, um, different parents want. So people want different things, is one thing. Um, the second question is like, you know, what the, the extent of, of our expectations, you know, what are we expecting of an education system? What do we think it can do? Is it realistic to expect it can do Your, your um, audio has gone really low just right you now. Can't, you can't hear me very well. I imagine no. if you pull out your microphone again, I can understand you better. No, let me try. I can already understand you better again. Does that sound bad? Uh, try speaking. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. My microphone here. Um, yeah, so anyway, it's, it's thorny. As soon as you start talking about schools performing or underperforming or something, that's the kind of level of analysis I'm not going to be ready for for a long time. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I think a lot of people weigh on in it, regardless of, you know, a lot of people weigh on in it because it's a political issue, so everyone wants to talk about it, but I don't think I'm going to be ready for it until I have lots and lots more understanding of things that are less contentious, uh, certainly for political reasons. Because once, once things get political, it's just like another layer of complication. Yeah. It's, it's just, yeah, for me, this, this kind of like small theory we came to at the end, like, of course, I have, I have no idea if that's true. It's just, it would just be one perspective that actually makes sense of quite a lot of the data I, I see. <laughs> and um, it would actually open up really interesting new questions. For instance, like, how do we, and I think then we get back to the third question we won't cover today, like, how do we um, kind of add helpful information to to the adaptive unconscious how do we teach the adaptive unconscious patterns and processes that are actually helpful for larger groups of people what does that even mean and 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 kind of sit that as a as a second question or a second field of thinking next to and how do we teach academic learning and the academic skills to um, function in this realm of uh, research or using certain academic procedures to problem solve within business and whatever we might consider coming out of the academic learning. Yeah, we'll have to schedule another time to talk about question three. Yeah. Oh, that was a very, I think in a way, really dense conversation today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, ma I managed to whip out some literacy research so that got me, got me talking for a while. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's, you have these things like flying around in your brain, don't you? Like you've read all of this third shit and it's like, mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, when you say flying around, I mean, in, in a sense, yes. Flying around makes it sound like I'm thinking about them all the time, but I'm not. No. They're there, and then, like, you know, at the right time, out they come, but I don't even know they're there. It's like having them in deep inside a wardrobe or something. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, I've got one of those. Just let me go get it. <laughs> uh, so, like, there, there might be, quite possibly, there, there are lots more things like that. I mean, what that shows is that I've, you know, reached the reach a certain kind of expertise threshold where I've forgotten some of the things I know, which is yeah. nice to know that I've re reached that threshold. But, um, but yeah, it means maybe there'll be more things I can pull out in the future as well. I, yeah, and I, and I think the way you pull them out, like number one, you're very structured with them. I really appreciate that. Um, and it seems like you- I was on time today. That was another thing. <laughs> I, I didn't insult you with my terrible timing and organization once. Where, where we are back to human skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I really do think this kind of conversation format of not having stuff laid out too, too clearly, but then drawing in thoughts and research and even though it's not perfect and we probably both make mistakes all the time because we read this thing two years ago so we we mess shit up 
but I think it actually shows the interconnectedness and at least for me opening this yeah opening this field for this thought of really distinguishing academic learning from different learning and the question of how big that overlap actually is because I implicitly had this idea of there must be quite some overlap but the more I think about it the more I'm like is there like I that that would that's a really powerful yet uh, uncomfortable thought for me I hadn't thought about that and that is actually a good a good yeah it's a good perspective um it is a very it's a very good perspective certainly it does a lot to when it comes down to thinking about transfer as I was saying like it makes a lot of sense that you're not going to transfer much if this is sort of in a way you know not touching those aspects of yourself but yeah if basically inside, yeah if basically what you learn are these um let's call them intellectual procedures but these intellectual procedures that are not based in in how our unconscious processes the world then those procedures will have very very little impact on 99% of our everyday life decisions and assessments i mean one thing that um one way that we could you know be more careful about this is considering that different academic subjects actually are going to have very different uh, yeah. content and nature so like two things we spoke about today is literacy and math and one thing i've tried to be clear about is the fact that those two things actually are really different um mm. in our expectations of them in the way that we think about them uh in the way that they're learned so they're actually very different and I, again, like I was trying to think, what other academic subjects can I reach for? I, I reach for history as an academic subject, and history is something where, um, you know, because you just use the you use the idea about procedures, but in history, most of the time you're not thinking about procedures. Most of the time, mm -hmm. you're about events. So, kind of learning facts about the past and like stories about the past, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, that the reason that's unlikely to affect you every day, probably because every day doesn't have very much to do with the Habsburg Empire, right? You know, you just don't need to think about that, right? But but if um if you have a conversation with people about things like something like current affairs or values, maybe that would impact you. Maybe especially if you if that if you were very interested in that knowledge or something, you you could say, well this is a bit like when Charles V did whatever. You know, <laughs> yeah. That would be a case of transfer though. That would be like transferring going like, oh well, you know, I think Donald Trump is a bit like, I don't know, yeah. Julius Caesar, <laughs> whatever whoever you want to call him. But um but yeah, that, that that would be a case where although it's hardly making a deep impact on your daily day to day decisions, it is sort of entering your day to day life. I, I would actually and this this can be a whole other discussion i would probably argue that history can potentially be one of the most impactful subjects not so much for the facts but for the stories we make up out of those facts like just just from a perspective of a german um if if oftentimes what's taught in history is this story of we as germans are 
in a way bad for having done what we have in the past. And like, and it's, I don't think it's taught like that anymore, but it was often taught as, and we should actually be ashamed of that still. That, that will deeply affect how I relate to, for instance, being German or um, my country and thus my politics. So I think those stories that we are taught also, if, if through American history, I'm taught that America is always the savior of the world, um, then that will impact how I approach the next proposal for war, depending on we need to save that country. Um, so I think those stories are really impactful. Um, the, the thing I was mostly thinking about when I said procedures was stuff like statistical analyses, was stuff like um, potentially um, learning about biology, but, but maybe learning about biology in an abstract way rather than in a, if you put this stuff into your body, that stuff happens. Um, uh -huh. I mean, if, if you want to hear an interesting story about history education, um, I've got an episode called History of Citizen Building about history education in Lithuania. When I was in Lithuania, I discovered that the way they view history is very strange. <laughs> yeah. Um, like Poland and Lithuania have a, have a intertwined history. They were actually a single state, essentially. They were kind of a double state, kind of a single state for several hundred years. And, um, and, but this is for a long time. It was for like a good, a good, hang on. Yeah, a good 400-ish years, right? So, and, and Lithuanian history and the way they tell it, they basically skip over several hundred years as if they never happened. Very strange. And it's basically because they don't, they want, I mean, I understand their motivation for doing so, but they want to distance themselves from Poland. So they don't want to say, they don't want to talk about the close relations with Poland in the past, so they just completely skip over several hundred years. So they don't want to talk about it. But it's like, how do they talk about before that and after that and miss out the middle? It's so weird. I mean, that's very interesting as well, yeah. So let's just take a few notes for our next conversation so, um, so we don't forget what we were talking about. I want to write down this academic knowledge slash procedures versus everyday knowledge and everyday procedures, something like that. And where is the overlap? This, this, this actually, I could talk about this also from the personal growth perspective as to many people learn theories about the mind and about change and all of that, but those theories don't impact what they do because it's, it's the wrong kind of, it doesn't, because it doesn't actually impact their unconscious strategies and their unconscious processes. We had the question of how to add uh, information to the to the unconscious. 
anything else that was kind of a thing that we wanted to deepen into? A loose end. Um, well, at one point in the future, we'll probably talk about transfer. I don't think transfer. we'll get to very soon. But you're, 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 you're still in that book. I've done <laughs> be, that book, yeah. Be, become, becoming more and more <laughs> disheartened. Oh, no. Well, I, 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 knew, I knew coming into it that, that it was kind of like this. Yeah. But like, mm. I, I just I need to get to know the literature better. Mm. I, I yeah. think that it might be one of these things where I feel I kind of get the sense that it's one of these things where it sounds really bad, but when you think about it carefully, you realize it's not that bad. It's a bit like rational behavior. You go, oh, people are so rational. Look at all these experiments. And you go, it's not that bad. <laughs> you know, like, you know, you, you kind of, you, you, you reflect on it and then you, re you, you try and make sense out of it and eventually you realize that, okay, so maybe things are a bit worse than you thought, but it's not like the end of the world and you can fit it inside your existing way of seeing things. Yeah. I mean, I think this could be, transfer could also be a really interesting thing to look at this distinction between academic procedures and everyday procedures because there is also quite substantial literature on transference. So yeah. the process of transferring um, experiences I've had with people in the past on people I am interacting with now based on certain characteristics and that that transference works incredibly well. Um, so again, it would be potentially about which knowledge is easy to transfer to our detriment or our advantage um, and which which kind of knowledge is really difficult to transfer yes that is um, yeah i mean i i don't have any yeah. And, and again, a third point to add to transfer would be this physical sports thing, that movement patterns are potentially quite transferable. But yeah, so <laughs> I think we have, quest we have uh, questions and topics for another 20 Two conversations. No, <laughs> Just in these. <laughs> well, I mean, every time we have a conversation, every time we speak, then we usually end up with at least another question. So. Yeah, but I, I really enjoy these exchanges. Like it, it really helps me to connect all these things I've picked up on in all sorts of different directions and to mm. connect them to really concrete questions. So yeah, they're, they're, they're very. They're, I, I like them very much as well. Um, I like them very much as well. They've been very helpful to me. Um, uh, so, do you know any of the people who watch them? Um, I I I know that people are watching and liking. I haven't really gotten much many comments yet, but um, I think it's one of those things. It's I mean, what we do here is a bit strange. We talk about topics that many people are kind of half interested in, but also not, not that much. Uh -huh. 
but at the same time, I think if people are into these questions, they can really take something from them. Like, yeah, no, I mean, so basically what you're saying is like, so your, your YouTube audience is, is, is like general, it's just people from YouTube. It's not like, you know, a hundred yeah. people who are watching it. No, okay. I no. thought maybe that you knew some people personally who are watching it. No, no, I've, the only comments I've gotten for it is, um, is basically saying thank you, but nothing more specific. Oh, okay. But then I think again, I'm probably re-listen re to some of these in the future. Yeah, I mean, in the future, giving it a bit of distance. <laughs> yeah, I'm obviously not like immediately close. Yeah, but um, I mean, I, I re-listen to episodes of my podcast occasionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that that helps me. I'm just gonna quit the recording for today. Yeah, that's fine. Full time. You never, you never know what's around the